0: All right. Well, we're back in our biblical interpretation class. And I was thinking about what we should do this week, of what would be most helpful. And I decided that what would be helpful is for me to spend a few minutes talking about Israel's timeline in terms of what happened between the last book of the New Te- Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament and going into the New Testament time period. So I think it's important for us to have a bit of a grasp on the kind of events that took place in what's sometimes called the intertestamental period or the second temple period. So I want to talk about that for a few minutes. But then I decided that it would probably be good for us to do some biblical interpretation exercises together. So I have a few passages that we'll look at as a group and consider as we think especially about historical background. So next week, we'll get into the idea of genre, literary features, but this week I wanted to follow up on some of the historical background that we got into last time. Now, um, as you know, it is it's hard to see on the screen everything that i'm going to show you it's not that important that you're able to see everything i suppose but if you would like this document which is basically a timeline if you would like that for your own study purposes let me know and i will send it to you Um, i think it's really helpful because it puts the events of israel's history kind of together in a succinct order Now, when we talk about Israel's history, can you guys all envision on a map where Israel is? Okay, you know, Egypt is kind of to the south, right? So if you're thinking move from Egypt up into the promised land, it's this kind of journey up and over. Well, this area, Israel, was taken over time and time again because it was right between Egypt in the rest of the known world. So if you wanted to do anything, if you're going to go to war against Egypt or Egypt going to war, this is kind of like the no man's land that gets taken over time and time again. Uh, it's, it's a really destructive thing, but that's what happens. So uh, one other point to keep in mind is the way that timelines work. So when we say like 2000 AD, and then now we're in 2023 AD, we know that we've moved this way on the timeline three years. But the numbers are in reverse when you're talking about BC. Um, So 5,000 BC is way over here, and 3,000 BC is way over here. Does that make sense? So it can kind of get confusing if you're just looking at dates in your head. If you hear like 586 BC, you have to think, down on this, this way on the timeline, and then 516 BC is this way on the timeline, all right? So it works down and then back up, all right? Um, So in 605 BC, 606, 605, Nebuchadnezzar, this guy that we read about in the Old Testament, takes over Judea. So Judea, Israel, Galilee, all of these places are pretty close together. Um, So Nebuchadnezzar takes over, And there's this really um, significant event that happens in 587 BC, and that's the destruction of Jerusalem and the first temple. So the Jerusalem temple is destroyed. Judah goes into exile. Uh, This is where things like the synagogue become popular because they don't have the temple anymore. Um, So if you're reading books like Daniel, where's Daniel? He's in the exile. It's during this time period, perhaps. Then 539 BC, Babylon, um, where Nebuchadnezzar is ruling from, falls to this guy Cyrus, the great. He's from Persia. Um, he comes in and he says, all of you exiles in Babylon, you can go back to Israel. So he releases the exiles. This was prophesied by Isaiah. Um, it's a good thing for Israels in captivity, right? God uses this pagan guy to let them go back to Israel. Now, as a point of fact, you have to keep in mind, not all of the Israelites went back to Israel. Is that, is that squared away in, in your brain? That's important because I think sometimes when we talk about Israel and Israelites, we imagine their most important objective was to be in the land of Israel. Well, that's not necessarily true, and if you think of them as actual people, that makes a lot of sense. Um, If you were born in that place, and you perhaps owned property or had grown up there, do you think that just because this guy took over the country and is letting every Israelite go back to Israel that you necessarily want to go, to start over? No, that's probably not going to happen. So some people are going to be inclined to stay in Babylon. Well, this Persian period lasts for a good amount of time, 539 to 331 B.C. And during that time period, some important events happened. Um, In 515, the second temple is dedicated. So they come back, they rebuild the temple, they dedicate it. Uh, This is going on during the times of Haggai, Zechariah. We've been hearing from Josh on Zechariah. Well, this is taking place during that Persian period. And then... um, 115 years later, um, the last prophet Malachi is probably writing. You know, some of these dates aren't quite precise. But um, around 400 AD, that's, that's or BC, that's the last Old Testament document that we have in our canon. And then there's another huge crisis that happens. And that's the collapse of the Persian Empire under the invasion of Alexander the Great. So now this guy comes in, and in 334, he defeats the Persians, and then by 331, he's taken control of pretty much all of the Middle East, including Israel. Um, So Alexander the Great, Greek guy, we talk about Hellenism, that's the influence of Greek culture on everything else. Well, Israel is experiencing what we might call Hellenization as well. So the Greek language is being used, Greek customs and cultures become part of daily life in Israel. That's why our New Testament is in Greek too. You know, you would imagine Aramaic or Hebrew, but it's in Greek because of the influence of of Alexander in in the Greco-Roman way of life. Um, Well, Alexander uh, dies, believe it or not. Everybody dies, even though some of these rulers said that they were divine and maybe would never die. Well, they die. He, he died, and his kingdom is divided into four parts, and Israel falls to one part of that kingdom that we call the uh, Ptolemy kingdom. It has the P in front of it, though, so if you want to keep it in your mind for spelling reasons, you can overemphasize Ptolemy. You know That's not how you should pronounce it, but that's, that's essentially Egyptian provenance. So um, the Ptolemies rule Palestine or Israel from Alexandria, Egypt. So Alexandria, Egypt is now like the capital of the known world, uh, or at least for Israel. Um, It's during this time that the Greek translation of the Old Testament is probably produced, um, and time goes on under foreign rule. Well, eventually this Egyptian rule comes to an end when the Seleucids, or the Syrians, take over. So once again, there's another battle. And during this time, this is now 168 BC, uh, this guy Antiochus Epiphanes was just a really cruel ruler from Syria. And he did a lot of devastating things. One of the things that he did is he came into Jerusalem, into the second temple that had been rebuilt, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar To Zeus. So can you imagine something more offensive to the Jews? A pig is being sacrificed in their temple to a pagan deity. That's awful. Um, this, This is the kind of thing that Daniel talked about, the abomination of desolation, this huge abomination that takes place in the temple. Well, you can imagine that that's also bad public policy, can't you? So if you're a foreign ruler over Israel and you do something like that, you can imagine that's going to incite a revolt. And that's exactly what happens. So these guys, the Maccabean family, begin to revolt against this foreign rule. It it is brutal. It is devastating. It is bloody. um, But it's recorded in the books that aren't included in our canon, but some traditions have it as like a secondary level of inspiration. The book of Maccabees, one, two, three, and four Maccabees records this kind of stuff. It's actually really interesting reading, um, but if you pick them up and read them, know they're written from a Jewish perspective, so obviously there's some Jewish propaganda that makes its way into those books. The point is that this revolt was actually somewhat successful. The temple was cleansed in 165 into 164, and there was a celebration started following that cleansing of the temple called the Feast of Dedication, or in modern terms, Hanukkah. So this happened during this feast took place during the winter. Um, so if you hear of Jewish people celebrating Hanukkah, that's a celebration for the cleansing of the temple following this profane sacrifice of a pig on the altar. Um, it happens around the time that we celebrate Christmas. Um, and Jesus even probably celebrated Hanukkah, or what became Hanukkah. So in John ten twenty two, Jesus goes up for the Feast of Dedication, this kind of tradition that became established 165 years prior to when Jesus was walking around. Then you have different sons, Maccabeans, who kind of somewhat self-rule for a while, Judas, Jonathan, Simon, um, and there are some messianic overtones to, to their ruling and leading as well. But by the time you get to 135 to 163, you have what we call the Hasmonean dynasty, and from 135 all the way down to 63, there's some measure of self-rulership in Israel. It's, It's almost like the good old days that you read about in the book of Judges or the Kings and Chronicles. And by good old days, I mean they have kind of control of their own space, but it's also not a flourishing, beautiful time of life. Part of that's because there were so many internal divisions in Israel that it took a lot to maintain control once you had control. So here we have to keep in mind that where we separate religion and politics, the two are the same thing in the ancient world everywhere, but for Israel, for sure. So when you talk about sex like Sadducees and Pharisees. These are the parties of the Sadducees and parties of the Pharisees, and there are more than just those. But there are different groups vying for power, and it's really not a stable time. So then by 63 BC, this guy Pompey, this Roman general, conquers Jerusalem. He establishes Roman rule in Jerusalem, in Israel. And this takes place from 63 BC to AD 70, so almost 100 years. Um, Julius Caesar is ruling in 44 AD, or, or sorry, 44 BC, and then he's assassinated in the Senate by Brutus. So if you know your your Shakespeare, your "Et tu, Brute?" I think that's it. Um, there's any political regime that takes place is fraught with. Internal divisions, and it's really dangerous to be in power. Um, Herod, then in 40 AD, is named king of Judea by the Roman Senate. So, Herod is um, Jewish, but he's not truly Jewish, if that makes sense. He's a pawn of the Roman government set up over Israel. So, he's not a Davidic king, he's just someone that Rome put in place. So whenever you're reading in the New Testament and you hear references to Herod, you have to realize that not everyone looked at Herod in the same way. Probably a lot of people looked at him as a traitor to true Israel Jewish identity. He's he's bought in and he's getting a lot of privilege and prestige by being the puppet of Rome. But there are other people who want to get on his side. You know, they, they want to benefit in the same way that he's benefiting. So he's a bit of a controversial figure, but he's essentially a vassal ruler. Um, But then as time goes on, this guy Octavian or Augustus uh, prevails in a civil war against Mark Antony and Cleopatra. It leads to what we might call the Golden Age of Rome or the Pax Romana. So all over the Roman Empire, it's grown. The Roman rulers are worshipped. There's this emperor worship thing. It's and again, it's tough for us to know exactly how to describe it because we separate religion and politics so much, or we try to, that worshipping the emperor, you could worship the emperor and recognize him as somewhat of a sub-deity, maybe. He's not on the same level as all the gods, but he's the god's representative, so to speak. Um, but there was the emperor cult where you could be executed, perhaps, for failing to um, offer sacrifices to the emperor. Well, Jews in this time were able to work out a bargain, um, you know, primarily because Roman didn't want to keep dealing with issues there, to where they could offer sacrifices on behalf of the Roman emperor to their god instead of to the Roman emperor. So they made a little bit of a fine distinction there. But my, my main point is Rome is in control, and um, Israel doesn't have much to say about it. And anyone who's in rulership or in power in Israel is only there because they're a pawn of the Roman government. Well, it's around this time, about 5, 5 BC, maybe, you know, this is debated. Jesus is born, but he's born under Roman rulership. And during his lifetime, Herod the Great dies, and he splits up kind of hit the areas he's responsible for between different guys, Philip, Antipas, and Archelaus. So there's a dispersion of power. And these guys, most of them did not do a very good job ruling. They were not as politically savvy as Herod the Great. And by AD 6, Archelaus, one of the guys, is totally replaced by Roman prefects. And Tiberius is is one of these guys. Pontius Pilate is set up as a governor of Judea. Pontius Pilate is like a deranged, insane individual. So when you read Roman background history stuff, this guy ended up getting himself killed, but he got his position revoked because he couldn't keep things tame enough in uh, Jerusalem. He, He was a messed up guy. Um, I, don't, I can't remember if he committed suicide or if he was executed. Steve, do you remember? Did Pilate commit suicide or was he executed? One of those two things. Okay. Yeah, anyway, he, he was a messed up guy. And um, not, not helpful for creating peace anywhere he went. But then, of course, um, around 33 AD, Jesus is crucified. Shortly thereafter, Paul is converted Um, and then this guy Gaius Caligula is a, a main ruler. Well as time goes on by 41 AD the ruler of Rome is Claudius and he expelled Jews from Rome. Okay so apparently there was a lot of debate and disagreement among Jews and Christians in Rome about this guy Crestus. We think that it was about Christ and you know, the way that government bureaucracy works, they can't get their facts right all the time. So probably they just confuse crestus for Christos. That's a, the Greek word for Christ. Um, so in order to keep peace, um, this guy Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome. So they go to other places. So Aquila and Priscilla, do these names sound familiar? They grew up in Rome But during this expulsion, they went to Corinth. And actually, while they were in Corinth, um, Paul met them, and Paul lived with them and worked with them. You can read about that in Acts 18. Um, But then, eventually, when he is no longer in power, um, Jews are able to come back into Rome. Well, as time goes on, Nero becomes the ruler of Rome. This guy also was deranged. Um, he probably set fire to Rome and then blamed Christians and other people for it. And he was probably the one in power when Peter and Paul were martyred. Well, flashback to Jerusalem. There's this Jewish revolt that does not go very well. Um, it's really bloody. It's, it's not a good thing. And then this guy Vespasian takes power and eventually destroys Jerusalem in the temple once again. So that was the final destruction of the temple, probably prophesied or predicted by Jesus in Matthew 24 and in other places. Um, so when he talks about how everything's going to be bad, um, this is what he's talking about. And then you have a series of other rulers, and then finally what's called the Bar Kokhba revolt, where Jews um, kind of revolt and are expelled until modern times. So this is just a really quick overview of a long history, but we have to keep these events in mind. And then as you're reading different books in the Bible, if you pull out a study Bible or something and you look at the date range of when that book was written or when the events are taking place that are being described in it, you can kind of place them along this timeline and figure out better how to understand what was going on. Does this make sense? Okay, biggest, biggest uh, things to keep in mind would be those major crises. So 587 to 586, you have the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple where everyone goes into exile. And then 515 to 516 is when the, the temple is rebuilt. So between them, um, Israelites go back. They rebuild the temple, 515 and 516 is a big um, event to keep in mind. Um, this persecution by Antiochus Epiphanes is really important in 168. That led to the cleansing of the temple, this first revolt. You want to keep that one in mind. And then by 63 BC, the domination by Rome. And then 70 AD, destruction of the second temple. If you can kind of have those markers in your mind as you read the Bible, I think that's really, really helpful. All right. Like I said, if you would like this document emailed to you, shoot me an email and I'll reply with sending it. At the bottom of the document, I went through and I made a list of all of the ancient writings that are not in our Bible during that time. So whether they're in the Apocrypha or Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, these falsely attributed writings in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what I kind of did is I listed it. I listed the date when it was made and then I kind of put some factors about the importance of that book. Um, so, for example, one that I've referenced at our church are the additions to Esther. Well, um, there's a brief explanation of what those additions do. Um, where there is no reference to God in the Hebrew edition of Esther, there are over 50 appearances of the references to God or the Lord in these six additions to Esther. Um, other books are also important along the way. They're all listed in here um, and if you're interested, you could look at that too. All right, any, any uh, thing that you want to chase down from second temple timeline? Okay, so um, I have some exercises for us to do as a group. So you're gonna have to pull out your Bible and potentially your phone um, because we want to use the internet uh, appropriately in our Bible study, because it's a free resource that will help us figure out some basic background things. So what I'm trying to show you is that reading the Bible takes time, um, but it doesn't take a doctorate degree and it doesn't take owning every resource in the world. Some basic things you can figure out just by pulling out your phone and um, being curious when you read the Bible and asking Google some questions, especially as it relates to timeline things. That's the first thing I want to emphasize. So um, the first example that I want to give is in Esther. So let's open to Esther chapter 1 and if someone would be interested in reading, Esther 1, 1 through 4. Okay, so if we're reading this and we're keeping in mind, we need to think about historical cultural background. We need to keep in mind the literary features, and then we want to detect the theological message. Anytime we're reading the Bible, we want those three features in mind. Um, When we're reading these first four verses, in terms of historical background, what are the kinds of things that we might ask of these four verses? What historical backgrounds might we want to investigate? Yeah, exactly. That's, a, that's where I would want to go first. Okay, so these events took place during the days of Ahasuerus. So we want to know, first of all, who this guy is, but we also want to know when he's reigning, okay? So um, who, a couple people maybe should look up on Google who was a Ahasuerus, Esther. You know, Google can put those things together for us. And then someone else might want to Google when did Ahasuerus reign, all right? And whoever gets one of those first, uh, raise your hand and just shout out the information that you learned. It might take a second. And anyone coming up with anything? No. Okay, he was a Persian monarch. Good, that fits with um, what we're seeing here, right? He had the army of Persia in media. Now, if, you hear, if you're reading he's a Persian monarch, what should that trigger in terms of Israel's timeline? Uh, Okay, Babylon falls to Cyrus, the great of Persia. Okay, so we're thinking Persia is important somehow to Israel's experience. Now, did anyone find the date for the rule of Ahasuerus? Or an approximate date, maybe? Okay, 485 to 465 BC. All right, so looking at our timeline. So if we're thinking exile took place in 587 to 586, and then in 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great takes over and he allows the exiles to go back to Israel. And then by 516, the second temple has been built and dedicated. And then by what time is he reigning? 485. Okay, I don't know math. But whatever 516 minus 485 is? 31. 31. Okay, so between the time of this guy's reign and the finishing of the second temple, it's been over 30 years. How many years has it been since 539 when Israel was allowed to go back to Israel, Jerusalem? What's 539 minus nine minus four? Okay, so 50 to 70 years, somewhere in that range, right? I don't know math. I need a calculator for these things. So let's, let's speculate a little bit, okay? If, if Ahasuerus is reigning in the mid-400s, and um, how should we describe the Israelites who are in Persia? Or what what would you think about them? Or what questions might you want to ask about them? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. If 50 years earlier you were allowed to go, why didn't you go? Um, What else might come to mind? that's a That's a very astute question, so if the temple has been rebuilt, we should be asking about these people thirty years later, How are you worshiping God? Um, obviously, there has to be a way to appropriately worship God when you're not in Jerusalem, because even if you 're in Israel, you can't go up to the temple every Sabbath or something. Um, But we might imagine that there are at least some pilgrimages to Jerusalem. We might wonder about the way that these Israelites are engaging in a distinctly God-fearing way of life while in Persia. Um, What other questions might you have? Or what answers to the questions might you have? Yeah, though I think maybe not uncle, right? Cousin? Oh, no, you're right. Uncle, who had adopted her as his own daughter. Okay, so what what were the circumstances that would cause Esther, her Jewish name is Hadassah, what would would have happened that she would have needed to be taken in by Mordecai? Um, And then that raises some questions for us about what's Mordecai's job? What does Mordecai do? Any, anyone know off the top of your head? Well, yeah, his relatives, how many years before now, over a hundred, or around 100, 150 years before, he had gone into exile. But what's his job? What does a man do for a living? He's not a cobbler, I don't think. Um, well, chapter 2, verses 19 gives us a clue, right? Verse 19. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, right? So Mordecai is probably a, a palace official, a court official, or something like that. So we're getting this picture of Israelites who are just, by all metrics outside of dna persians they're they're just folded into the life of persia Um, when we read through Esther, we don't find anything distinctly israelite do we so i think when we're reading and placing this we have those those questions that we're asking are going to shape the way that we go into the book won't they um what, what we enter into is a description of God's people, so to speak, Israelites, who are indistinguishable from non-Israelites. There's nothing except for one hint, which is Esther's true name, Jewish name, Hadassah, which is never used again. So it, I think the author is trying to get us to ask, what, what is the identity crisis here? And is there one? Is there a sense of these people that they don't quite belong in Persia? That they're not quite home, not quite where they should be? And I think the answer is we don't get a sense of that identity crisis. All right. So um, do you see how putting this on the timeline sort of helps us ask some good questions about about the text? All right. I, I want one more Google exploration in Esther. All right. Um, so in chapter three, this guy Haman gets permission to, um, put out an execution order on all Jews in the city, right? So in Esther three, seven, it says in the first month, the month of Nisan in Ahasuerus' twelfth year. So here we're able, able to more precisely date when this is going on in Ahasuerus' reign, but um, could someone Google the month of Nissan? When, when you hear that, probably it just doesn't register as anything meaningful. What's the month of Nissan? Well, yeah, so it's the first month, right? Um, yeah, that's important for us because here... Um, the poor, that is the lot, was cast. Now, when do Jews celebrate Purim? I mean, what, what does Google tell us? It, it March 23rd. Yeah, March 23rd. Um, okay, so it's in Nissan, you know, in this ancient terminology. I, one question that I have for you, is when was the Passover celebrated? It's right around that time period. So it seems to me that right when Israel would have been celebrating Passover, or like the night before, is when this verdict comes down. I think we won't spend too much time chasing this out, but this would be an area where, as you're reading through Esther, you probably they've made a big deal about when these events happen. They've list the month, they list the days. So there should be something triggered in your mind that would cause you to do a little bit of searching for Jewish calendar or ancient Jewish calendar or something like that in trying to place when these events took place. And then I think you'd want to overlay onto that when different festivals or celebrations would have taken place on the Jewish calendar, so you can identify what would have been going on in standard Jewish life in Jerusalem, where this temple has been built, um, at the same time that these events would have been taking place in Susa. Does that make sense? Um, Because I think what you'd see is a lack of reference to events that maybe should have been referenced. Because if an extermination order is coming out for your people, the night before, everyone in Israel is preparing for Passover. What would that trigger in your mind? Hopefully. Hopefully it would trigger. Um, there was a, dis- a destruction order on Israel in the past. And God rescued them. But there's no reference to God rescuing his people in Esser, And that's what should hit us. And, and there should be every single reason in the world for there to be a reference to God when you start looking at the calendar, okay? So you see how digging into some of this historical background adds layers of meaning to what's going on there. Now, for us, we have to dig into it because it's not our daily experience. But for them, for ancient Jews reading this text, do you think they'd have to like go to the library or something to figure out? what the significance of these days are no it's just part of it so um it would it uh i'm trying to think of a good example um let's say that on um you you pulled out your eventbrite little thing to look for free events in our area and you saw that on april 8th on saturday april 8th a renowned atheist was coming to Minneapolis to the convention center to give a huge conference on um, the illogical nature of resurrection. And his whole conference is based on dead people stay dead. Well, if you're a Christian and you're looking at that, um, you know that April 9th is Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. So the whole contextual situation there, you just experience, if you're aware of your calendar at all. Now that's a little tough because Easter is a moving holiday, right? But, but you get the point. If in the spring someone's doing a massive conference saying that, that people have never come back to life from the dead, you're going to place it as this is a polemic against what Christians put their greatest hope in, the resurrection of Jesus. All right, any comments or questions on on that. Okay, it doesn't take a lot of work, but sometimes Google is really helpful for filling in some of these gaps for us. You don't have to buy Bible software or do anything else. Sometimes, though, um, we just have to be curious and realize that the Bible provides its own historical background for what's being written. So turn with me to Ruth chapter one. Now, we'll still use Google a little bit Um, because it's so helpful. Okay, so if someone could read Ruth 1, 1 through 5. Okay, thank you, Richard. For sake of time, I'm not going to ask you to identify some historical background things to find. We only have five minutes, so I just want to walk you through some things. Um, that maybe would be instructive. First, we notice again that a time frame is given. It's during the time of the judges. Time of the judges, thumbs up or thumbs down in terms of faithfulness to God. Time of judges, um, as this uh, children's speaker that I know would say, it was wicky wicky bad bad. It's awful. Um, Now, that means that Israel's been unfaithful to the covenant, right? Well, what's one of the primary curses of the covenant when Israel's not faithful. Well, let me read you Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 16. If you listen to and are careful to keep these ordinances, the Lord your God will keep his covenant loyalty with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you, he will bless you, he will multiply you. He will bless your offspring and the produce of your land, your grain, your wine, fresh oil. When you look at this text, I'd suggest that if you're attending to the historical background and the covenantal background, you would identify two famines. One would be the famine of grain. That's explicitly told to you. I think we should interpret this as an indication that Israel is not being faithful to God. Um, so this story is set in a dark time, we might say. Um, and worse, this guy left Bethlehem. And if you Googled the name of Bethlehem, you should, you should look up the names of places. It means house of bread. So it's ironic that the guy is leaving the house of bread to go find bread where? In Moab, under the rule of the foreign god Kemosh, right? Um, and what's ironic even more is if you look up Elimelech's name, it means my god is king. Um, that's significant too. But if you are curious and attending to the text, one detail will jump out to you. Um, these sons took Moabite women as wives. And there's some stuff you'd want to look up there. But after they lived in Moab about 10 years, these two guys also died. And the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. And in these two marriages, no children were produced. So we could call that a famine of the womb. Now, there might be some debate about whether this is 10 years, if they've been married for 10 years and still have not had children or if it's from the time they moved there. Either way, the two blessings, your produce, your fields, and your offspring, those are completely absent here. And in fact, the whole story is about an absence of offspring. You know, Naomi is described as being left without her sons. And then at the end of the book, of course, when God grants that Ruth could conceive, um, and then that Naomi uh, is going to be a grandmother, that child is called her son, you know? So, th- so that's an interesting thing. But the point is, if we attend to the historical background here that the Bible itself gives us in some of these features like the meaning of names, it sets us up to enter into the story the right way. We don't see a faithful family, we see an unfaithful family. Um, if you looked up a couple other names, Melon and Killian, you'd find some variations, but Melon, like weak or something like that, and then Killian Sickly or something like that. Um, but there, there are a lot of details that just being curious and doing a little bit of looking will set you up well for in terms of your understanding of a text, all right? Um, we're pretty much at the end of our time here. We have two minutes. Um, any, any questions or things you'd want to chase down, whether that we've talked about or just generally related? All right, then let me leave you with two ideas. Number one, um, I gave you three C's for interpreting the Bible. Read it in light of Christ. Read it to grow in charity or love. Read it in community. I I thought we should add one C. Read it curiously. Read it with curiosity, asking good questions of the text. If you have those four C's in your mind, um, you'll do really well reading the Bible. And then second, last time I talked about the hermeneutical triangle, where you think about historical, cultural features, literary features, and the theological message. You can bring those two categories in mind, your four C's and your triangle. You're going to do really, really well at reading the Bible. All right, thanks for hanging with me.